Mystery Theater, Radio Boise's program for all things literary, performative, and dramatic, going on right here in the Treasure Valley. Today, we feature a staged reading of a play called Fair Use, written and directed by Sands Hall. Fair Use was performed before a live audience in Boise on Saturday, June 3rd, at the Morrison Center's Danny Peterson Theater. The play concerns an early Boise author and a timeless literary controversy. In the late 1800s, readers around the nation were introduced to life in the American West through the illustrations and writings of a Boise artist named Mary Halleck Foote. She featured Boise's high desert country and the city's early pioneers in her work. Foote's autobiography was later published, and many soon noticed that passages from Foote appeared verbatim in Wallace Stegner's 1971 novel, Angle of Repose which won the Pulitzer Prize. This was more than coincidence. Stegner liberally used, or others say plagiarized, Foote's life and writings. Foote never knew about it. She passed away in 1938. And to this day, her descendants remain troubled by it. Playwright Sands Hall sheds more light on this controversy in our stage reading of Fair Use. Fair use is more than that, though. You'll hear some of Foote's most eloquent writings read aloud, and hear the story of how a creative couple went on to shape Boise and the West. Before you hear the play, Sans Hall and I will introduce you to the stage and some of the characters. So this will be basically a kind of kitchen where a character named Playwright sits. This, you probably witness, is where Mary Halleck Foote sits, character named MHF, all this will become clear. This is a more delicate Victorian era desk, but sturdy enough because Mary Hallett was a sturdy person. Over here we have a character conveniently named W.S. I wonder whose initials those are. <laughs> um, and uh, he is working with a typewriter, of course, and you can imagine a massive, huge oak desk that's appropriate for an esteemed man of American letters. And here is historian study, and I'd like you to imagine just books everywhere on the walls, and this is a one little pile, there's like 20 of them, all right, just piles and piles of books. He is, as you will find out, uh, somewhat of a scholar. So that is, I think, all you need to know. Fair Use is a multi-layered play. Through a debate a playwright has with her historian father, not only do Mary Halleck Foote MHF, and Wallace Stegner, WS, come to life and join in, but so do their respective doppelgangers, Mary and Susan and Arthur and Oliver. Enjoy. Our lives build onto themselves. Mansions or hovels, we seldom cross the same threshold twice. On that New Year's evening, 1868, the parlors of the Beach's house were filled with large company. Dark had fallen outside. I was sitting close to the great plate glass window, and I saw in it as in a mirror all of the persons assembled within the rooms. We were there reflected on the background of night, our images softened and mysteriously beautified. One face, One face in, the in the foreground showed as distinct, distinct against the darkness of the world outside. outside. I, I made an attempt to draw it. It was a face in line with my view, and as it happened, it was the only one of those mirrored in the window that has stayed in my own life. 
All, the, All others the others are gone, gone out of it years, years ago. ago. Most, Most of them are out, out of the world. world. It was the face of my future husband. Whose face? Oliver Ward's, my grandfather's. Excuse me, did you say Ward? <laughs> the West already held huge attractions for Oliver Ward. Engineering genius that he was. Okay, excuse me, who is this Oliver Ward? Aren't these my reminiscences? Bear with me, I have a plan. <laughs> but according to these reminiscences, written when my grandmother was in her 80s... Oh, but no, we have no grandsons, only granddaughters. The West began for Mary. Mm, no. Bonnie... Susan. Yes, Susan, ah... Uh, Burling on the last day of 1873. Susan Burling, who is Susan? You. Me? Also me. That's what he calls you, Susan Burling, or actually Mary Oliver, Susan Ward. And then you write, when you write, you get to be Mary Halleck. I get to be Mary Halleck, eventually Mary Halleck Foot. Isn't it so cool? I get to be both of you. Susan Burling, and, and he's... Sometimes I am Arthur Foote, and sometimes I am Oliver Ward. <laughs> well, I don't know why we can't simply be Mary and Arthur Foote. Foote has a certain stability, don't you think? Especially two foots. <laughs> Susan had been in New York for several winters. She was studying illustration with the famous A.J. Linton, and was beginning to get small commissions. Mr. Linton, dear Mr. Linton, years and years later, you know, it was his daughter, Nellie, who came to live with us in Idaho. Eventually, she even joined us here in the Grass Valley. As governess. That's right. Good for you, dear. Isn't it wonderful the way life finally begins to close the circles that it opens? Well, I don't know why our names must be changed, but I certainly do remember that afternoon. I'd slipped into the, the library at the Beach's house, and in the quiet there grubbed away at a piece of work I had brought with me, a drawing for the magazine Hearth and Home, which had to be finished on time. Mm, I see her there like one of her own drawings, a, a maiden on a window seat. Her latest and most important commission was a scene for... Um, the cover of Hearth and Home. The door behind me opened with a burst of sound and then closed again. A young man stood there who apologized for his entrance and asked if he might stay. Excuse me, Miss Burling? I mean, Miss Halleck? Wait. <laughs> That's right. She's speaking. So right now, I'm Mary Halleck and you're Arthur. Ah, uh, <laughs> Excuse me. Miss Halleck, I do hope I'm not interrupting, but please, might I stay? No, no, too diffident. Where's the spark, the, the interest? The scene needs spice. He's got more confidence. He's, she's got more attitude. Uh, <laughs> Sometime some later, the door opened, letting in a wave of party noise. Susan looked up and saw... Mr. Beecher's cousin, <laughs> Oliver Ward. Miss Burling? 
He had such an earnest, inquiring face that she felt like throwing the drawing pad at it. I did what? Excuse me. Arthur is indeed Mr. Beecher's cousin, and this is all very flattering, a play about... A novel. A play. Whatever it is, it appears to be about Arthur and me. But why would I want to throw a drawing pad, especially at an earnest and inquiring face? You don't. Susan does. Well, I can't imagine doing such a thing. I didn't believe I could draw a stroke with him there, but I did. No, no, no. She wouldn't just go on working with him and standing there. Susan laid the drawing pad face down. Oh, come, Miss Burling. Can't you just keep drawing and pay no attention to me? <laughs> All right, Mr. Ward, if you'll pay no attention to me. Oh, dear, no. I might have said those words, but not in that way. <laughs> and also, why Ward? And also, why are you beginning with my meeting Arthur? What about growing up in Milton? What about my sister Bessie? And above all, what about Helena? What in hell is going on? <laughs> Who are all these people? Bessie, Helena, Mary Susan, Arthur, Oliver. It's impossible. Hey, come here a minute, will you? Just a sec, Dad. Hey, why are all these people talking at the same time, and why in the hell did they keep interrupting each other? Well, if you keep reading, I think You're that not clear. Does this take place before or after the Civil War? Both. Some of the Halleck's, Quakers though they are, are even stauncher abolitionists, and they're off fighting. Some of them died. Mary was in New York City studying at the Cooper Union School of Design when Lincoln was shot. Colonel Lincoln. Now there is a subject worth writing about. For Grant. She said Lincoln's assassination was the only time she wanted to go home. Grant's presidency may have been riddled with corruption, but... But she knew how lucky she was to be attending college at all. Cooper Union was one of the... Things established under Grant's tenure. Cooper Union was one of the only colleges that even admitted women. Dad... National Park Service, the Forest Service, the Geological Survey, and the federal government paid for all this. My God, there are men of vision in Congress then. Not to mention the Transcontinental Railway. Guess what happened in 1869? Wyoming Territory gave women the vote? No. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, yes, they did, but that's not important. Whoa! <laughs> no, no, it's, no, of course it was important. But what's really important is this. In 1869, the railway's last spike a golden one was driven in at Promontory Summit, Utah, and with it, the East connected to the West. Now that is history. Oh, are there's three more pages? I do appreciate your reading my play, but if you find it uninteresting, you don't have no, to. No, no. Oh, I, I learned that, that lesson from your mother. I'll be interested if it kills me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, by the way, um, Emily has been in here. Didn't I specifically say not in my study? Well, she has to kiss her popa before bedtime. Popa. How did I ever allow that name to enter my life? It's Steve's turn to pick her up. She'll be back after dinner, no doubt, revved up on sugar. Dad, thanks. Yeah, just get that pink thing out of here. <laughs> It was my sister Bessie's face that launched my ships when I began to be called the artist of the family. 
She posed as my lady of Shalott, Duchess May, Guinevere. All this stuff about the sister. Nah, nah, nah. It was Bessie who helped convince the family that the place for me was the Cooper Union School of Design. Ah, Cooper Union. Uh, get that in. And then Helena dawned on my 19th year like a rose-pink winter sunrise. Helena. Must have Helena. And then Helena dawned on my 19th year. No, Diana, Mariana, Augusta, yes. Augusta? And then Augusta dawned on my 19th year like a rose-pink winter sunrise. Sweet and cold from a walk up from the ferry. Across the city, across the city we, we came, came together, together and, and across, across the, the world, world in some respects. By spring, we were, we were sitting, sitting together, together at anatomy, anatomy lectures and Friday composition class. Helena's Augustus sharings in books and, and friends were the stored honey, honey of, my of my childhood. Listen to this, Dad. Salt is added to dry rose petals. With the, the perfume and spices when we stored them away in covered jars. The summers, summers of our past, we wrote to each other for 50 years. You still haven't explained why this W.S. character and this Mary Halleck book person keep talking at the same time. Are, Are you, you serious? serious? <laughs> Won't that just confuse the audience? He's using her words. Who is? Wallace Stegner, that's the point. Oh, good lord, that tired old accusation. What accusation? The, the, the salt and roses bit, for example, it's in Angle of Repose on page 33, but it's from Mary Halleck's foot, Mary Halleck Foot's Reminiscences on page 97. I see why he used it. It's an apt metaphor. Reveals a lot about the woman and the no, time. But she came up with it. And when I read Angle of Repose, I thought Stegner had. Everyone does. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, he often mixed history facts with fiction. He was a novelist. It's what they do. All writers do. You used your mother and me in your last drama. I shudder to remember. I borrowed elements of your relationship. Those characters weren't you. Those dinner table conversations, word for word. Our separation... Bridge for the writer's mill, Dad. But the story of the play had nothing to do with your and Mom's actual lives. Whereas what Stegner did to Mary Hallett Foote, an angle of repose... You can't copyright a life. It, it was just... As you said, grist for the mill. Not just her life, Dad. That controversy is ancient history. He used her words, page after page of them, without acknowledging them. No, I did. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, there's an acknowledgement at the front of the novel. Yeah, it's right here. My thanks to J.M. and her sister for the loan of their ancestors. There you go. This J.M. is Clearly a descendant. Janet Mickelow, one of Mary's three granddaughters. Well, anyway, it's clear that she loaned Stegner her ancestors, whatever that means. First edition, this, Wally autographed it for me. For John, friend and colleague. Friend, colleague. That meant a lot to me, I can tell you. That man shaped my life. You're very welcome, uh, John. But out, would you? Pardon I, no, never mind. I, at first, Janet and the family thought Stegner would be writing a biography. That's what he led them to believe, and they had every reason to think that he would honor those ancestors. I did. Which he did not. 
I did. Sort of. All right. Now listen to this right here at the front of the book. This is a novel which uses selected facts from their real lives. Selected facts? Just wait until you see what he means by selected facts. Look, I'm commissioned to write on the subject of Stegner. An adaptation of Angle of Repose is suggested. I reread the novel. I do some research. I hear some old rumor about he's copied someone's diary or something. I think it's nonsense. A man of Stegner's stature? But then I start into a Victorian gentlewoman in the far west. The reminiscences of Mary Hallett Foot. Uh, oh. And just 30 pages, I come across, and then Helena dawned upon my 19th year like a rose pink winter sunrise, followed by a long passage that I've just finished reading, An Angle of Repose, which describes Mary and Helena's precious, if complicated, friendship all the way to salt is added to dried rose petals. When we, we stored them away in covered, covered jars, the summers of our past. We wrote to each other for 50 years. And the hair rose along my arms. Oh, cue the melodrama. So, I keep reading the reminiscences, and I find sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, page after page, which I just finished reading in Stegner's novel. I look for a forward. I look for something that tells me the source of all the stuff he's copying. And what do I find? My thanks to, to J.M. And, and, and her sister, sister for the loan of their, their ancestors. ancestors. I thought it was a great acknowledgement. Yeah. But it, it's the word, uh, plagiarize? Uh, plagiarize? It is not plagiarism. Now let's do the math. Angle of Repose was published when? 1971. And puts reminiscences. The Huntington Library brought them out in 1972. They weren't published when Stegner used them. There was no copyright. Huh, bingo! So it's fine to copy someone else's work as long as there's no copyright? Dad, Mr... Footnotes himself defending this practice, people get thrown out of universities for less. You docked my allowance for a month the time I tried it in sixth grade. Plagiarize. <laughs> Verb. One, to steal and use the ideas or writing of another right. as one's right. own. That is enough. That's enough. So, this, uh, this is what your new play is about, huh? You informed the theater that commissioned it what the subject matter is? I had the same question. Uh, no, not yet. Well, I doubt the trashing of a Western icon is what they had in mind. I'm not trashing him. I'm just pointing out that he borrowed a lot of material. Well, he (laughs) borrowed his way into writing a lot of terrific books. Now, beyond the 100th millennium, Meridian, about John Wesley Powell, Joe Hill, his biographical novel about the labor organizer, Crossing to Safety. I gather Stegner used a real friendship as the basis for this one. Hundreds of groundbreaking articles on race relations, the environment, the West, the wilderness letter. I mean, brilliant. It was effective, written in a single afternoon. Wow, look at this. Looks like you've brought your whole office home from college. Now, no one ever wrote more provocatively about the West. Now, listen to this. Looking a long way is not a social experience. It's an aesthetic or even a religious one. It happens outdoors. Gorgeous, isn't it? A great man. A great man of American letters. All these books. By Stegner, about Stegner. Can I borrow this? Which? Ah, Richard Etchelin's interviews. And that's a good one. Conversations with Stegner on history and literature. In fact... 
That one's got a section on the controversy you're so fired up about, but don't move the stickies. <laughs> Let's see if this next bit is any clearer. All right. I've established Helena Augusta, Susan's childhood in Milton, got in that visit from Frederick Douglass, that dinner with Susan B. Anthony. Now back to that New Year's Eve, 1873. Now back to that New Year's Eve, 1873. <laughs> All right, Mr. Foote, if you'll pay no attention to me. Nope, you're Susan here. Oh, right. All right, Mr. Ward, if you'll pay no attention to me. That'll be harder, Miss Burling. I'll try. He did not praise my work. He merely said how jolly it must be to have work that one liked and make it pay. It must be wonderful to do what you like and to get paid. Why? Don't you, Mr. Ward? I'm not doing anything. Not getting paid either. <laughs> <laughs> this dialogue works well. What's he mean here about the dialogue? He often dramatizes scenes that Mary Halleck Foote describes, incorporating her dialogue. I gathered he was thinking hungrily of some work that should have been his. Well, I started out to be an engineer. And at an advanced age, gave it up. <laughs> his eyes had given out. Permanently, he was told by an oculist, a mistake that cost the stunned patient his last two years at Sheffield Scientific School. I was at Yale. At the Sheffield Scientific School, my eyes went bad. I was supposed to be going blind. Sheffield, Yale. What was this fellow's name again? Arthur DeWint Foote, A.D. to some. A.D. Foote. A.D. Foote. That's ringing a bell. Hey, we're trying to do some acting here. <laughs> but I'm going to say it again, dear. A lot of this is redundant. People keep saying things twice. That's the point. Hey, wait, how did Stegner get hold of the foot material in the first place? A student of his at Stanford, McMurray chose Mary Foote as the subject of his dissertation. McMurray tracked down some Foote descendants who lived in the Sierra, including Janet Niccolo, and was invited for a visit. He asked Stegner if he wanted to come along. I like the family. The family was thrilled to have attention paid to their illustrious but forgotten ancestors. I had to thank them kind of darkly and ambiguously, but I am grateful. Janet offered them boxes and boxes full of memorabilia, and they stuffed their car with irreplaceable letters, illustrations, documents. I meant to return them. I didn't, but they are safe and sound in the Stanford Library. McMurray never completed his dissertation. Eventually, Stegner circled back to the idea and to the foot descendants. And as he puts it, the family was most forthcoming. <laughs> Forthcoming, who wouldn't be? Wallace Stegner interested in your family history? But why worry about Yale if he had had his eyes? I asked him. I said, why not go ahead and become an engineer on your own? My class has graduated, Miss Burling, but I'm going out west and become an engineer on my own. <laughs> Susan began to giggle. Ward looked dismayed. Excuse me, I believe it was I who said, why not go ahead and become an engineer on your own? It sounds so different when he says it. it Arthur was never a braggart. <laughs> and I certainly did not giggle in that insipid way. She seems Susan, and a bit of a snob, too. Why are you making me appear like this? 
I've been thinking Wally has to have checked into fair use. What do you mean, fair use? Well, as Campbell puts it, the guarantee of breathing space at the heart of copyright. When one works with historical documents, one has to know copyright law. Fair use, Folsom versus Marsh, 1841, Justice Story. First, what is the purpose of the work? The nature of it. In this case, unmistakably a piece of literature. You must also take into consideration how much is used in relation to the whole. Even Stegner's adulatory biographer, Jackson Benson, admits that Mary's letters to Helena comprise over 10% of the manuscript. Ridiculous. How come you let Emily play with things like this? <laughs> I think someone like you would consider this a terrible influence. Someone like me does. Steve gave it to her and had a fit when I suggested we donate it to Goodwill. And that's 60 out of 600 pages, Dad. And that's just the letters. Benson never mentioned Stegner's use of the reminiscences, presumably because he never read the two of them side by side. Direct quotes from the rems, sometimes pages at a time, are another 15% of the manuscript, at least. The book sells like bottled water. He made money off of her work. Yeah. Commerciality. That's an aspect of fair use, all right. But uh, aren't you doing the same thing? Aren't there works of Stegner in this play you're writing? Thank you. I'm glad someone's pointing it out. Most of them were hers to start with. You put the guy in a wheelchair. Isn't the narrator of the novel... Lyman, Lyman Ward. Ward. Isn't he in a wheelchair? W.S. is not meant to be Lyman Ward. Well, I mean, it's clear that he's meant to be a character pretty damn similar to Wallace Stegner. You are treading on thin ice, my dear. Oh, there's that joint. Why on earth would you think W.S. is meant to be Stegner? His name is Waldo Stripnine. He's W.S. When you get sardonic, you remind me most unpleasantly of your mother. <laughs> Do you know what Stegner tells Echelaine in that book of yours? Well, for one thing, he says straight out that the genesis of the novel was the Mary Halleckfort papers. He's not hiding anything. Stegner also says this. As far as I'm concerned, the Mary Halleckfort stuff had the same function as raw material. Broken rocks out of which I could make the any kind of wall I wanted to. And your point is? Stuff. Broken, Broken rocks. rocks. So? So Stegner's stuff is my raw material. The broken rocks out of which I can make the wall I want to. Voila. Meet W.S. It's not the same. Broken rocks. Stegner had a life. A well-known life. Uh, and Mary Foote didn't? Her illustrations, 12 novels, same number Stegner wrote, by the way, and popular, well-reviewed novels, husband, children, grandchildren, stories, essays, not so dissimilar to Mr. Stegner's life and career, is it? Yet, it's perfectly okay for Stegner to turn Mary into Susan, a mewling, whining, narrow-minded little bigot who hates her life, resents her husband, which is not the person I see when I read the Rems, or her wonderful letters I see someone struggling with choices, with life turning out different than what she'd expected, what she dreamed of. She, he's so dismissive and disdainful of women. Not true. Not true. <laughs> While he adored his wife, his mother was an inspiration to him all his life. Well, the women in his novels are either viragos or victims. Although, the next bit is nice. If, but 
He got it directly from the reminiscences. I can't believe you still carry a handkerchief. Now, where was I? Uh, in 1873, Oliver Ward wrote that he was coming home from the West. Long Pond and Black Pond were not enough for a man who had seen the Yosemite. So Susan and Bessie took Oliver to Big Pond, eight miles back in the woods. Why does he change my name and Arthur's, but not my sister Bessie's? Or the names for the of the ponds, for that matter. When I made it clear to, to Janet Miklow that, that I wasn't going to be writing a biography, she asked me not to use the family's names. Bessie is family. She's her My sister. sister. <sighs> Late that afternoon, she lay down and hung her face over the cliff to see down the waterfall. Oh, I remember this scene from Anglover Post. It's very charming, very inventive. It reveals a lot about the characters. <laughs> Oliver Ward hanging on to her ankles to make sure she didn't spill over. Where did he get that? I did not include those in my reminiscences. Does that man have my letters? He does. I and I do too. My letters to Helena. They're lovely. They make me wish so much that I had been your friend. Will you trust what I'm doing with them, please? We heard the river calling to us, Helena, blowing its trumpet from the steep. Suddenly the trees stopped. Go on, that's yours. On the brink of a wild stream. We scrambled down a bank and crossed over great white boulders trimmed with soft black moss like velvet. Such a roar and rush and whirl of water, we couldn't hear each other's voices except as we spoke face to face. <laughs> There's no use describing a waterfall. I lay flat on the edge of the rock and looked down and under the fall where the water had hollowed out a dark cave beneath the white veil of spray, and there was no danger. Arthur Foote held on to my feet. Use the bit I write after this, a good bit of prose, about how he, he wouldn't have let go of those ankles if fire, killer bees, or redskins had swarmed him. Uh, and Susan, when she came up from the zizzing tete-a-tete -tete with the waterfall, she was in love. What a marvelous metaphor for Susan's life. The East, everything old, safe, literary, and artistic, secure, and West, new, Dangerous, crude, and raw, the waterfall over which Susan Mary. hung most of her life. And everyone assumes Stegner came up with it. Well, I mean, yes, yes. Is uh, is there anything uh, to eat around here? <laughs> <laughs> he used diaries and letters in many of the books, uh, like this one, Beyond the Hundredth Meridian. We'd be in much better shape if a uh, you know, hundred years ago we'd followed Powell's advice about water use. And anyway, he includes all kinds of material written by John Wesley Powell. This is nonfiction, Dad. It's clearly about Powell. Of course he's going to use Powell's papers. We don't assume that a picturesque turn of phrase or a powerful description is Stegner's. We understand, especially if it's quoted or indented, as he does here, that it's from Powell's journal or from Powell's letters. 
Stegner doesn't get the credit for creating them. And look at these footnotes! There are no footnotes in Angle of Repose. Footnotes in fiction? There is such thing as a forward. And give away the plot. An afterward? Nautilus include those all the time, where authors explain what's fact and what they've invented. May I borrow this? That book should be a part of every Westerner's education. Should be part of yours. Why does that make me want to hand it right back to you? <laughs> I have something that I need to say to you. Oh, Lord, a lecture. You are tilling old ground, and it's pointless. It's, it's been well established that in creating his fiction, Stegner writes from real life. Think about the first novel, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Heartbreakingly autobiographical. That terrible childhood. An awful father tearing all over the West, dragging his family along, looking for a fast way to make a buck, digging for gold in Alaska, bootlegging in Saskatchewan, running a saloon in Salt Lake City of all places. <laughs> Yet, in spite of dire poverty, his mother found a way to get Wally books. A piano. Nurtured him in the face of his father's contempt. He is certainly not dismissive or disdainful of women. No, to his eye, the man, the man is, is a destroyer. destroyer. The wife, wife is, is patient, forbearing. Patient, forbearing? Oh, isn't that the highest compliment? What? what? What women ought to be, you mean? Won't complain or leave when men are cold, distant, otherwise occupied? Don't. Just don't. I'm, I'm sorry. It just... However, the women in Stegner's novels are either control freaks who won't let their husbands do what they want to do, or else they're forbearing, dependent in some soul-breaking way. Do you realize how many sick or handicapped people he has in his novels? How else do you show the ball and chain, the, the unencumbrance that keeps a person from living a complete life? Cancer, crutches, wheelchairs, what point is he making? It's a way to show an inner flaw. Uh, creates tension. In his novel, Crossing Safety. In his novel, he is Sally, the crippled wife of a famous author who would have been so much more famous had he not had to devote his life to her. He has Sally repeat three times, I am not a millstone around your neck. I am not Crossing a millstone. Crossing to Safety is a wonderful, powerful novel. But he's saying Thank something you. about life with a wife, isn't he? We are so difficult, we wives. Even Emily. Well, Three. Emily is not difficult, just a little wild at times. Well, but you can't bear for her to touch any of your books. They're irreplaceable, and she often has jam on her fingers or something. I mean, look, Stegner's novels reflect the time in which he lived. And no doubt, Mary Foots reflect the time in which she did. Let me guess, perhaps a bit romantic? Romantic, you bet. Not the later novels, not after we love Star Beloved Agnes. Not the later novels, not after Agnes died. Stegner himself thought of her as a realist. He actually taught her stories. I did. In a course at Stanford called The Rise of Realism. He said she was, she was one of the best, best and hadn't been, been noticed. She was famous, Dad. As famous in her time as Stegner was no, in his. No, impossible. She she illustrated stories by Louisa May Alcott, poems by Henry Longfellow, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. 
She was clear that it was possible to have marriage and a career, and this is the 1870s, whereas Helena had a crisis about her painting when she decided to marry Richard. Helena, dearest, if you choose to believe yourself in bonds, you might as well be. But if you don't let your palette and brushes into the secret of your changed life, everything will go on the same. But does Stegner choose to point any of this out? No! He pokes his little male joke stick at the idea that Helena, Augusta, and Mary have some lesbian love affair going on. What's that? You don't want to know. <laughs> so, while Mary's meeting all these interesting people, Arthur's out west, being an engineer. Keep reading. Let's see. Arthur was in the high Sierras, working on the future of water power. He was in a hot and dusty railroad camp locating the famous loop at the Tehachapi Pass. So while he sweated in the mountains surveying the Tehachapi Loop. And in the Sutro Tunnel, roasted, steamed out. And boiled alive in the Sutro Tunnel. He kept receiving these letters that talked about the commission she was getting all the famous and interesting people she was meeting. It was ungenerous and crude of me, flaunting these riches of society and acquaintanceship in the face of his poverty. And it was poverty. There was no prospect of a home in any of those parts. But when, through the influence of James D. Haig, Arthur became resident engineer at an old and settled camp in California, marriage began to look possible. Wait a minute. J.D. Haig, the mining consultant? You've heard of him then? Well, I mean, he was only friend and counselor to just about every personality the late 1800s produced. He was on the survey of the 40th parallel with Powell in the exploration of Utah, out west in the major mines, back east, raising capital. He knew, he knew everyone. He was also Mary Halleck Foote's brother-in-law. Yep, J.D. Haig married Arthur's sister, Mary. Oliver's sister Mary married a prominent uh, mining engineer named Craig um, Conrad Prager. And through Prager's influence, at last Oliver found a job at the new Almaden Mercury Mine. I was in the midst of illustrations for Longfellow's skeleton in armor when out of the West came word that the new Almaden Mines resident engineer was coming home to be married. He unpacked his leathery luggage in the room that we still call grandmother's room and laid his pipe and pistol on the bureau where her chaste handkerchiefs had been wont to lie. He came armed with decision where indecision awaited him and of course he carried the day. And of course, he carried the day. Did it ever strike you that she wrote too many letters to Helen on her honeymoon? Or how long it took her to get to California after she was married? She, she was, was finishing, finishing commissions. And he was getting a house ready. And think of all that she was leaving. The East was the past. She chose the future. The East was art. She went West for love. <laughs> she even brought a maid with her for crying out loud, uh, petted, cosseted, molly foot, insisted on bringing the East to the West. What's so great about the East? By the way, W.S., why did you have your ashes scattered near a cottage in Vermont? I would have thought that you have chosen to have them tossed to the wind in the West that you loved so much, for which you did so much. Well, I spent every summer in Vermont. That's not the East, I mean. 
Um, <laughs> Mrs. Butch. Dearest Helena, yesterday the train took us across the great prairie land of Iowa. The lonely little cluster of settlers' houses amid, amid the great monotonous waves of land make my heart ache for the women who live there. They stand in the house doors as the train whirls past, and I wonder if they feel the hopelessness of their exile. It is always fascinating, W.S., to see what you choose not to include. Alone on the platform, I had the sunset and great prairie all to myself. Its outline against the sky was absolutely without a single detail to break its magnificent loneliness. A wind blew across it, strong yet soft. Oh, just get her to New Almaden. <laughs> Finally, Helena, we cross into California. We paused for a long time in Colfax. Quite a number of miners disembarked heading to Grass Valley to the Empire Mine. It made us quite late, but waiting for me in San Francisco were Arthur, um, James D. Hay, my new brother-in-law, and his wife, Mary. She not only booked a hotel for us, she sent everything a woman seven days on an overland train could want, including a darling little dinner jacket that commended her taste to my taste. Was it really cute? Buttons here and here, and darling cuffs and a little peplum. That night, the Hags hosted an elegant dinner in a home so lovely that it would have, could have been lifted out of Manhattan and placed there on Knob Hill. You know, if we put aside that part of End of Repose that's set in the 1970s, and the narrator, Lyman Ward, who Stegner, for some reason, has stuck in a wheelchair. That weird disease forced him to have one of his legs amputated. He'd been cuckled by his wife, the nasty, nasty woman. Mm -hmm. Stegner couldn't have a castrated protagonist, could he? Even though that's the implication, so he did the next closest thing. I never thought of that. <laughs> anyway, if we put aside the modern story, the historical sections of the novel, the parts with Oliver and Susan, celebrate the people who settled the West, most of them our forebears, who brought their Eastern energy and education and expertise West. Engineers in most cultures are the ones who change the shape of the earth. The wards were those people. The foots were those people. Dad, you sound like you're giving a speech. Do I? No. <laughs> has created such a home for us in New Almaden, Helena. I love it. I love the click of the gate, which means that he is home. And while he works, I walk and sketch, especially the miners, their wives and children in the Chinese and Mexican camps. I'm so glad that you like these drawings, but imagine my surprise, Helena, when Richard wrote to say that he wants to publish them in April's century. Wait, wait, is, is she talking about Century Magazine? Yes. Century Magazine, which means Richard is Richard Gilder, the editor? Richard? Stephen? Richard Gilder was married to Helena? The rose pink winter sunrise friend? Thomas, Thomas Edson. How can you just rename the actual editor of Century Magazine? Published Henry James, Mark Twain, Ulysses S. Grant. And Mary Halleck Foote. Dearest Helena, thank you for the box of your tea, which I served on our piazza in the evenings as we watched the deep 
colored sunsets, the amazing rush of stars. They weren't that happy. I'm racing to finish the illustrations for the Scarlet Letter before the baby arrives. So, this Hester Prynne uh, is married, but she has uh, kept company with a clergyman. And so Hester Prynne must wear a large red A on her chest, the Scarlet Letter. Tell me, darling, I've been trying to sort it out for myself, but I'm dumbfounded. What on earth is that? A Chinese flag. A worker from the Chinese camp brought it. Isn't it the most perfect thing to shade our piazza? It's quite yellow. <laughs> and it's huge. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. Letters. One from Helena and one from Bessie. <laughs> and a man from the Mexican camp brought a fish. They certainly do like Hugh Arthur, just as certainly as they don't like Mr. Randall. Randall is the despot of this ugly little fiefdom. He treats the miners like slaves. I keep thinking about the man we met at the Hague's, the one who said that investors are like children blowing bubbles and that the bubbles will pop. He scared me. Men like that care only for lining of their own pockets, and nothing for miners who risk their lives pecking all that wealth out of the ground. It's an aspect of this business that I abhor. Oh, no! What is it, oh. Molly? It's Helena's baby. She's... Oh, poor Helena. Poor, poor Richard. No, no, no. In one instant, her picnic in the West had turned into exile. Susie, what is it? Tell me. I want to go home. Be with Augusta. But how can I? We can't afford anything. And here I am, stuck in this dry, awful place. I did wish so much that I could go comfort Helena, but hardly in the way that you've depicted. <laughs> well, this is Susan Burling's life, not Mary Halleck's. The book has nothing to do with the actual life of Mary F Molly Foote, except that I borrowed a lot of her experiences. What? You would not say something <sighs> so ridiculous? Oh, it's exactly what he says. To Richard Echelaine, an inter interview? First, he told the Foote family he was writing a biography, but then he changed his tune because he said, since it would involve no recognizable characterizations, he wrote in 1967. I never said that. And no quotations direct from the letters. How do you know I said that? <laughs> How do you know he said that? From a letter he wrote to J.M.? Janet Nicolo? Hey, that's my letter. <laughs> I assume this sort of book is more or less open to me. And then he adds, P.S. Do you know the location of your grandmother's reminiscences? Uh, you have no right to use my letter. Dearest Helena, I have given great thought to the plan you propose. But I'm just not so sure about Richard's idea that I fashion my endless letters into an essay. Do you really think the readers of Century Magazine would care about that? I didn't have a friend to publish me. Thy descriptions of this place are lively and true, Mary. Oh, Arthur, thy poor eyes. Thou hast worked too long again. The work is fine. It's the miserable little intrigues, the corruption, the spies and toadies. And thee won't. What is that word the Chinese use? Kowtow. 
Molly, got bad news. Oh dear, it's that awful Mr. Randall, isn't it? I gave notice. I'm sorry. I had to, Molly. I've seen it coming, but oh, Arthur, our beautiful home. You and Sonny can stay in Santa Cruz while I look for work. Have patience with me, girlie. We'll work out of it. Oh, my dear boy. Unless your eyes pain you, dear Helena. Dear Augusta. Please read please this, read this to, to yourself. Mary, Mary Traeger was here visiting. visiting. Her doctor, doctor says she absolutely must not have another, another child. And, and told her the means of preventing any mistake. mistake. She, she must go, go to a physician and get a shield of some kind. I remember this letter from the book. These things are called conundrums and are made either of rubber or skin. It all sounds perfectly revolting, but one must face it. That is really something so precise to the time. It is, and a troubling precision. Mrs. Haig was clearly not to get pregnant again. Helena had a horrid number of miscarriages. Stillbirths? Mary, too. Sad fact of those times. But do you see what I mean? He takes what Mary wrote, types it into his manuscript, and then calls himself the author. There's a great deal of precedent. You know about Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda. Bret Hart never visited the mining camp in his life. He got all his information from the Shirley letters. And note how often it's men that do the exploiting, the mining, the plundering, land, women, words. There's that romance writer who borrowed passages from, what's her name, Nora Roberts? But mostly, Dad, you have to admit that it's men who somehow feel it's perfectly right and proper for them to tear up and alter and destroy the land. Why else is it called virgin territory? <laughs> and their predilection to claim women's work as their own? Are you kidding me? Steve? How about that Goodwin woman? Blatant. Steve is leaving for Zaire. Day after tomorrow, a dam going up in the tributary of the Lulav or something. Damn it. He'll miss another one of Emily's piano recitals. And we talked about this. When is he going to be a father? He does all the cooking. <laughs> when he's here, which is never. You know, Stegner found his title, The Angle of Repose, in Foote's reminiscences. The angle at which a given material will no longer slide. It's a life metaphor, she points out. Only she knows because of her engineering husband. Damn it, Steve. Come on. He's a good man, working on good things in the world. Oh, which is so much more important than being here when Emily sounded out her first word. Attending teacher meetings, driving around. Never mind. Look, a review in the New Statesman says that most of Stegner's novel is, quote, devoted to Susan Burling, and that, and that is its great strength. And she is its great strength. Every single review praises Stegner's ability with the voice, especially Susan's, says the Atlantic Monthly, and the letters that are a triumph of verisimilitude. Verisimilitude, the reviews crude, and they praise Stegner's authenticity. The novel won a Pulitzer, Dad, give it the program. Right, look. I think this divorce is an asinine idea. Nevertheless, I've offered you and M and your dog and your fish, for crying out loud, a place to live while you and Steve bicker over what, who gets to live in your house. But I'm damn tired of being badgered in my own home. I'm not badgering, Dad. I'm you, just... you are badgering. And you're trying to bring a great man down. 
I don't want a thing to do I with it. I am not trying to bring him down. I'm trying to right a wrong. You know, why am I, why am I even reading this? You offered? Well, I'm sorry I did. I don't, I don't know why. I didn't know what it was going to be about. Just get it out of here. I wish it would just get out of the whole house. Waiting is part of the breaking in. Come along, dear. Working is the best way to keep on. Waiting is part of the breaking in of an engineer's wife, and Sonny and I did a lot of that that winter in Santa Cruz, watching the vacant, smiling seas. Arthur joined us when he could. Oh, God, not more mooning around. Scanning the ocean, Susan brooded. Oh, Oliver, why South America? Why can't there be a mine in Santa Cruz that wants an engineer with exactly your qualifications? Look how happy little Ollie is. And what, Susan, are exactly my qualifications? Yeah, this is more like it. <laughs> Oliver threw a last pebble into the waves. If I turn down this opportunity in Bolivia, Prager will never give me another chance. Something else is sure to show up. Susan, that's the only thing in a month Every mining engineer in the West is sitting in his empty office playing solitaire. Now, that was true enough. And the only thing that did show up finally was Deadwood City in the Black Hills of the Dakotas. Oh, Don, let me finish. We haven't touched my Century Magazine money. We did use that money. It was all gone by the time Arthur took the Deadwood job. And I'm sure I can sell Thomas another article. It's why he took the Deadwood job. Of course you can, Susan. But it's not your success we have to worry about, is it? Perhaps he was recalling the moment he held her ankles while she peered over the waterfall. Perhaps he thought, though I do not believe he did, that on that long-ago afternoon he might just as well have put his hand on the pan of a bear trap. A bear trap? Why does he write about us in that way? The fame of Leadville silver eclipsed even Deadwood's promises of gold. The new camp was booming at an altitude of 10,000 feet, close to the ridge pole of the continent. When are they in Leadville? 1879, 1880. 1880. John Wesley Powell had just published his report on the arid regions. If only we'd listened to him. What a different West we'd have today. Dad, I apologize. Never mind. I'm used to it, having lived 20 odd years with your mother. <laughs> Leadville, Silver Strikes, the Geological Survey. Leadville was a hotbed of activity, but uh, where's the little boy? Nice of you to ask. While Arthur was in Deadwood, Mary took Sonny back to Milton, but when she was about to head to Leadville, Sonny got a bad fever and couldn't travel. Mary, unable to bear being parted from Arthur any longer, left him in the care of Bessie and their mother and took the train to Colorado. We traveled as far as we could on Denver's narrow gauge, then started out at dawn with a buggy and two skinny horses from the end of the track. 
tableau, tiny figures at the foot of a long rising saddle, snow peaks north and south, another high range across the west. The road crawled upward toward the place where the saddle emptied into sky. The wind came across into her face with a taste of snow in it, and not all the glittering brightness could disguise the cold that lurked in the air. My goodness, that is nicely done. What's that gentleman's name? W.S. Nicely done, Mr. W.S., very nicely done, as if you were there. Now, I had my own relationship with the West. Did you, Mr. W.S.? Montana, Alaska, Canada, Utah, most of my early life, but we were dirt poor. No maids, governesses, no houses with verandas, no East Coast frills, no running back and forth across the country on trains. But your descriptions managed to bring the sense of space back. Wind across prairie, rush of stars, the smells, the loneliness. Loveliness. No, no, no. Uh, that's what you do. You romanticize the West. It wasn't a romantic place. I was never in doubt about that, and this episode is hardly romantic. We spent much of the day steadily climbing. Our horses had no load to speak of, yet before noon one of them was hanging back and showing signs of that lung fever which in this altitude has but one end. She looked at the horse, spraddle-legged, dull-eyed, with pumping lungs and flaring nostrils and heard the breath rattled in his throat. He's sick. They're not pulling much of a load, and we're still a mile from the pass. I'll walk. We're, we're at 12,000 feet. The pass is 13 or more. You'll be gasping like that horse in minutes. Then let's lighten the load. If we leave the luggage, it will disappear. Go on now. Get on. From that on, the drive was spoiled by seeing the gasping creature kept up to his work. On the last and steepest part of the grade, a sharp turn with a precipice on one side narrowed the road rather suddenly. Around the upper bend came a pair of trotting horses, then another pair, then another, then the rocking cradle of the stage. They had the precipice on their right, we had the bank. I felt that moment I would just as soon die myself as see my husband force that dying horse up the wall of earth, but it had to be done. He stood out on the buggy step, throwing his weight on the upper wheels and laid on the lash. Ah! The sick horse floundered. Oliver lashed, lashed, lashed it. She screamed and grabbed for his whip arm. He shook her off. There was smoke of horse breath, a a, a nose, a rumble, a a close, tense, voiceless rush. The two men driving exchanged a queer smile. Oliver lashed the sick horse harshly, lashed its mate, leapt to the ground and kept us slashing. The buggy crawled upward. Susan sat white and trembling, hating his cruelty, hating the heartless mountains, the brutal west. The heartless mountains? The brutal west? That wasn't cruelty, Mr. W.S. It was necessity. Arthur saved our lives. Nor did I hate the west, quite the contrary. But except for that last bit where you turned me into a simpering ninny, that was a wonderful piece of writing. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that episode to such vivid life. Why didn't you come in by stage? Everyone else did. That would have been realism, Mr. W.S. We knew what it was, but 
Arthur tried for so long to give me romance, we were trying to keep up standards. Ah, Eastern standards. Terrible tyranny. And they want to believe, they want us to, to write the romantic hogwash that the West was settled by prospectors, picked over their shoulders, singing, Oh, Susanna! What a horse opera! We must convince them otherwise, who, who really led the way. Men like your husband, families like yours, people who settled, settlers. Have you read Crevacoir? Yes, but he tends to oversimplify things, don't you think? We dined at the Clarendon in a bedlam of male voices, a wild clatter of dishes, waiters rushing madly about. We smiled at each other and consumed our food. A moon lighted our way. Have you read Crevacoir? Do you know about his types of American heroes? There's the farmer, industrious, family-oriented, socially responsible. Oliver Ward was one of those. Arthur Foote was one of those. And then there's the type uh, Louis L'Amour mythologized, men of the raw frontier. This is the man our American movies are about, the Marlboro Man. Odd how we still romanticize him. The rugged individualist. The rugged irresponsibleist. <laughs> Steve is not irresponsible. Uh, by the way, he, he called again to the home phone. When he's not in Zaire, he's in Brazil. He's in Arizona. He's in the Ural Mountains. Oh, he's trying to save the planet. Give him a break. He could do with some saving around his own home. Why don't you just talk to him? It's the fifth call this week from Zaire. We do all the talking we need to do by email. Oh. Sounded good, Emily. Well, why not uh, go along with him? Can't you ride anywhere? I'm not going to follow him around. You could accompany him. Mary Foote drew and wrote pretty much everywhere. And yank Emily out of school? Emily, good job. Practice really is making perfect. One half hour on your iPad and then come kiss Pope Good night. Well, anyway, funny how we still mythologize him. The Marlboro Man. Even though most of those cowboys were just hired hands, Never putting down roots. Still true. They pride themselves on living alone, tilling no ground. Slaves to corporations then and now. Stegner tried to point that out. He wanted to demythologize it. Even though his readers wanted romantic images, Stegner refused to write them. He worked so hard to change the way people perceived the West. There you go again. The what again? Speechifying about Stegner. I find it really curious. In fact, curiouser and curiouser. It reminds me of when he used to practice on me and Mom. He was a huge mentor. Being in that class of his at Stanford was life-changing. Engineers changing the shape of the Earth, our forebears, and now you're pretty much mythologizing Stegner's demythification of the West. You're going to have to stop interrupting me if you want to do this. <laughs> the moon lighted our way. There were woods behind us and the lights of the town in Carbonate Gulch below. And Sam Clark had made a good fire in the cabin and no one was there. Mm, sentimental. I was very grateful to Sam Clark for his thoughtfulness. Aha! Uh -huh. You mean Frank. Never too early to start setting up Frank. We knew no one named Frank. What a wonderful time Arthur and I had in Leadville. Camping and horseback riding, visitors from everywhere crossing the stream to visit our little cabin in the ditch. 
And what was that little tete-a-tete with Mr. King last night? You were outside for an hour, leaving me to Helen Hunt Jackson. I like her writing very much, but we missed you. King is taking the geological survey to the Sierra next spring. Ah, and he wants thee to go along. So the Foots actually knew Clarence King? I thought Stegner invented that. The Foots' little cabin on the ditch was famous all over the West. They used Clarence King's geological survey as wallpaper. There they go again. The geological survey. Hot dang. Lucky fellows out there. King camping, climbing mountains, running rivers, naming lakes and peaks and deserts. And what did they discover out there in that supposedly useless region? Essential to the building of our nation and a hell of a lot of fortunes. Sulfur, lead, mercury, uranium, oh boy, and water. Now that was the real goal. As Powell was wise enough to see, and as Stegner points out in his terrific biography, Beyond the Hundredth Meridian. Actors. <laughs> and he wants thee to go along. Mining engineer on King's Geological Survey. It's a prestigious opportunity, Mary. Thee was gone all last summer. Said he'd provide a cabin for thee and Sonny in the beautiful Napa Valley. But they'll be always gone. Remember that year thee was in Deadwood? What about the position at the mine here in Leadville? Uh, bringing our man low. Bringing him low. It's true, Molly. That year we spent apart is irretrievably lost. All right, then. What shall it be? The survey or the mines? Forcing him to manage a mine when he could have made his name, his career out there with King. I hardly forced my husband to manage that mine, Mr. W.S. Anyway, it's time to get the meat of things. Dear Augusta, do you remember by chance a Staten Island family named Sergeant? Their son Frank is Oliver's assistant. There was no Frank. Oh, you're giving whoever it is a different name as you gave Arthur and me. Let me guess. Is, is it Pricey Sam Clark? Frank is a splendid boy. He extravagantly admires Oliver and is indispensable to me. When Oliver's business keeps him away, Frank carries in my wood, runs my errands, takes me riding. I know. You're talking about dear Ferdinand Van Zandt. Van Zandt was such a help. And he... We did have such a wonderful time writing. Every evening after dinner, you and Van Zandt, something was going on. Every evening after supper, Frank saddled up Susan's horse and... All right, I know where you're heading. This Frank fellow shows up in Idaho, doesn't he? In Stegner's version of the story. Well, he's, he's doing what fiction writers do. Conflating characters. Streamlining events, you're doing it too. But he follows completely the trajectory of their lives and then throws in this utterly false accusation, which is what it boils down to. And he knew what he was doing too. March 1970, Stanford University. Why do I have this sinking feeling? Dear Janet. Sinking. Probably you thought I was dead, paralyzed, struck dumb, or otherwise incapacitated. I am none of these. I am only slow as a sinful conscience. Interesting. See, Stegner's just found out that Mary's reminiscences are going to be published, and he's a little freaked out. Me, 
I think it's a splendid idea, but if the reminiscences are going to be published, it won't take much literary detective work to discover what family I'm basing my story on. Does he say that? Must I now unravel the little threads I so painstakingly raveled together, the real with the fictional, and replace all truth with fiction? Or does it matter to you that an occasional reader or scholar can detect the foots behind my fictions? Yeah, I see that. For reasons of drama, <coughs> if nothing, nothing else, I'm, I'm having, having to throw in a domestic tragedy of an, of an entirely fictional nature. But, but I, I think, think I'm, I'm not, too not too far from, from their real characters. I have a reasonable explanation. Well, this is illuminating. So you see what I mean? I, I, I do. I do, but... but uh, here's another one. The novel's been published, and it's now March 1971. Dear Janet, I must admit, I send you this book with some trepidation. I imagine you may have expected me to stick with your grandmother's life and character. And that I found, I found I was unable to, to do. I had to warp it. It warped itself as the novel progressed, while still retaining, at least loosely, the structure of her life. Don't you love how he phrases that? Oops, I had nothing to do with it. It just warped itself. <laughs> it's pretty damning, isn't it? Isn't it? It's troubling, yes. But what? Right. Why in the hell am I pussyfooting around like this? Right, here's the thing. A year ago, long before you asked me to take a look at this play of yours, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at a conference in Stanford. Oh my god. Is it a celebration of Wallace Stegner? No, it's a symposium called How Artists Captured the West. And, well, I, I'm speaking about Stegner. But, now, wait, before you get worked up, let me say... Look, look, you're going to be all laudatory, aren't you? Look, I don't have to excuse myself, and I'm certainly not going to cancel. Stegner captured the West. No one better. Because of his writing program at Stanford, other writers continue to capture it. Without Wallace Stegner, we wouldn't have Western, letter Western literature. Yeah, no. Talk about someone else. Anyone else. Mary Held Foote. Talk about how she captured the West. Her illustrations, stories, novels. What? No. No one knows who she is. Well, you let them know, Dad. You can't stand up there and talk about Stegner as if he's some kind of hero. He is a hero. To a lot of people. A huge hero for literary, and environmental. I won't be party to besmirching his name. Besmirching? That is not what I'm doing. Look, look. I do what I do because of him. I am who I am. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my friend. Wow. Thanks so much, Dad. So appreciate the support. You know, I wonder how proud you'll be to claim that all that once you read Act 2. <laughs> oh dear, mm. didn't go well. It went fine, actually. They're interested, they want us to lower the asking price by a couple of grand, but they're willing to cover the inspection. Well, that's good, isn't it? Being there was hard. Our kitchen, the deck. Anyway, I stopped by his new shop on my way back. He wasn't there, which is just as well. God only knows what I might have said. 
How's the space coming along? Looks good, actually. Better than I would have thought. His assistant said he was running an errand with Emily, I suppose. I was relieved. Figured he'd have her sanding shelves or something. He's trying to be around, give him some credit. I do, but a kayak rental business? Seems like a good idea, certainly in the summertime around here. Come on, maybe it's his way of saying I'm sorry. What's I'm sorry supposed to accomplish? Well, it can mean someone's thought through his actions. Wants to acknowledge an error of his ways. How else? I mean, what else can you do when you can't go back and uh, fix things when you get all done? Like using a Stanford symposium to applaud a man who's already had too much adulation? <laughs> How about using a play to bring a great man down? Oh. Let's not ruin right, no, We're not going evening. to discuss this any further. You know, I read the 100th Meridian. Did you? Yeah. It's terrific. And it also makes it very clear that Arthur Foote's dream of irrigation out in Idaho, his big ditch, it wasn't crazy. It was just way ahead of its time. That's the early 1800s, right? Yeah, when they get back from Mexico. Mexico, right. That's a huge section of Stegner's novel. Most of it copied directly from an article Mary published in Century Magazine. Anyway, when they get back, Arthur heads out to Idaho. Bessie's husband, John, goes with them. Mary stays in Milton, where her second child, Betsy, Betty, is born. No, no, Betsy. Contrary to Stegner's testy version of their time in Mexico, Betty appears to have been conceived there. Hecho in Mexico. So were you, you know. Your mother and I had wonderful times in Mexico. Wonderful. Now let's get out of here. Don't you have a play to write or something? I was home with the family in Milton, finishing my first novel, The Lead Horse Claim, when a letter from my husband sent me back to bed and turned my face to the wall. Don't try to comfort me, Bessie. Idaho, Idaho, and not mining irrigation. I know your John thinks it's a splendid idea, but it means... Awkward, awkward. Word, you have her talking to someone who isn't even on stage. <laughs> Come on, the sister isn't coming along anyway. Bessie not coming to Idaho? Then that is your version, W.S. Mary. But it means we're turning our backs on all the mining experiences and all those friends and beginning all over. Just have Oliver come home and tell her the news. <laughs> That's what I did. What does Arthur know about irrigation? Oh, Bessie, we're to be the authors and projectors from the ground up. Ground indeed. 300,000 acres of it. The great attraction of which appears to be that it needs water. It's a desert. It will take millions, Bessie. We can't influence capital like that. Oh, there it is in a nutshell. I'm the eternal misbeliever and I'm his wife. What do you bet Arthur Foote read John Wesley Powell's report on the lands of the arid region, published in 1879? What year is this? 1883. What do you bet? The country wanted so much to believe in the Jeffersonian ideal that all a farmer and his family need is 160 acres. But 160 acres in the green, green hills of Virginia is a different fact than 160 acres in Nevada or Utah in the desert states, that barely sustains a couple of cows. 
But he came back from Idaho and in one evening's talk upstairs by ourselves convinced me that he was not mad. Oh, Arthur. Even the name of the river seems evil. The snake? <laughs> it's the Boise River, Molly. The Boise River Canyon. It's beautiful, you'll see. And we'll be bringing water to the lands and people who need it. It's a wonderful scheme. He had that conviction which makes it possible to unfold a country or bring up a child from the cradle. Oliver led her to the foot of the baby's basket. Do you think you can bring her up, Sue? Make a woman of that baby? What kind of mother would I be if I didn't think so, Oliver? Will you believe me when I tell you that I'm just as confident I can carry water to that desert? From the pocket of his coat, <laughs> the pocket of his coat Oliver pulled a brochure. Susan took it disdainfully. I did not take it disdainfully. The Idaho Mining and Irrigation Company? I found a copy of the company's prospectus amongst grandmother's things. The engineer's wife read it somewhat as a work of fiction, all history in the making being fiction to a majority in its day. I thought I was the only writer of fiction in the family, Oliver. Fiction? Look who the president is! The president was General C.H. Tompkins, head of Diamond Drill. General C.H. Tompkins is not used to backing fictions. That's it, Mr. W.S. When Arthur headed west again, I tentatively sounded Bessie on the question. Might she and John throw in their lot with us more permanently? And to my delight, she was keen on the idea. Even went ahead to join her John, and we followed in 1884. We disembarked in Kena. No one remembers Kena. <laughs> a place where silence closed about you after the rumble of the train. What do you think, Molly? Telegraph wires all the way out here and feel the wind. The wind had music in it, magic in it. It came across immense dry areas without an object to harp upon except those man-made wires. Do you think they can like it? Thus far, we like it very much. And not a tree in sight, just miles and miles of pallid sagebrush, as moonlight unto sunlight is that desert sage to other green. That's the Sawtooth Range, and those are the Owyhee Mountains, and the big one is War Eagle Mountain, 8,000 feet. <sighs> and is that Boise? Mm -hmm. It's so well... Small, <laughs> but well laid out. Metropolis of the desert plains. Now, here, we're driving straight across the drainage. Oh, the wife of the irrigation engineer has marked the phrase, Arthur. <laughs> Part of the new language I'll be expected to know. <laughs> she was not that jolly. She's in real exile now. I, I didn't use this scene in my book, but let me give it a try. With an attempt at enthusiasm, Oliver pointed the long whip. Now here, Susan, we're driving straight across the drainage. I finally learned the mining terms. Now, as the wife of the irrigation engineer, I have to learn an entirely new language. Goodness, why would I speak to him that way? Look here. What was the name of her first collection of short stories uh, written in Idaho? In exile. Touche, W.S. 
Come on now, bounce. (laughs) And there, Mary, is the river we've come to tame. Oh my, Arthur. It's wild. Look at it go. Store that river in reservoirs we're going to build in the hills. Dig canals all through this dry land. Turn on the water and cover the valley with farms. Can you see it? The big ditch. Now here is work we're spending a lifetime on. I do begin to see it, Arthur, my dear old boy. Dear Helena, another beginning. Beds and tables and chairs to sit on, yearnings and gropings after beauty in the raw new surroundings, but oh, how good it is to find a resting place with a sister in it. I simply don't understand why you have to bring the sister along. This time, Helena, I had all the regular hard pains of childbirth prolonged because there was no life to help itself out. And you know how sad it is to lie there and know it's all for nothing and will end in loss instead of gain. I was an awful baby about it and cried like one. If I were you, I'd get Frank back in the picture. Mr. Van Zandt, he never came to Idaho, Mr. W.S. He married not long after Leadville. A whirlwind romance put his wife's considerable fortune into a mine in Montana. You're going to squander that storyline? But as always, Arthur had wonderful men to help him. There was A.J. Wiley, a boy of 23 that summer, and Harry Tompkins from Staten Island, another um, diplomat engineer with his future before him. There you go. That would be Frank. There was no Frank. No, no, Harry Tompkins, sweet boy, was the son of the company's president, General Tompkins, whose fortune funded Arthur's endeavor. Frank Sargent. Uh, let's cut to the chase. Susan chatters to Augusta a good deal during her first year or so in Boise. Uh, nothing there to know about, neither events or feelings. Recipes, gossip, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I have to keep turning the pages of those chatty, empty letters for a long time before I find any words stopping at. A bit much, dear. He wouldn't have said anything so rude. It's exactly what he has Lyman Ward say in the novel. But those chatty, empty letters contain hundreds of lyrical passages. Descriptions of the light, the sky, camping trips she takes with Arthur. There's the night she goes down the rapids. I was not a bit afraid. The worst that could have happened was the boat might have struck a rock going with the force of that tremendous current and we would have been obliged to walk back 10 miles in wet clothes. Oh, my dear Helena, you write to me about tea with Mrs. Roosevelt and how Henry James takes his coffee. I write to you about Arthur's roses and the travails of Mormon emigrants. Oh, Arthur, who could have dreamed there'd be such a response to my very first novel? Look at these letters. And Richard wants to serialize John Bodwin's testimony before Houghton Mifflin publishes it next fall. Mary. And guess what else? The Atlantic Monthly. Mary. Wrote to request a story. The Atlantic Monthly requested one. Our funders in the East. It's the recession. It's happening to so many banks. I was so afraid of this. These, I'm afraid, are the bubbles that friend of Mr. Haig spoke of. They're bursting. What will we do, Arthur? We can barely afford this Boise house as it is. General Tompkins trusts it's temporary, but... We're going to have to move, aren't we? Well, he's sure he can find other investors. Yes. 
All of us. John and Bessie, too, the children. But where? Well, there's the canyon. The canyon? With all that digging going on? There won't be any digging for the time being, will there? Look, there's, there's Charlie Wan's cook tent, there's Wiley and Tompkins' tent. They've said they'll stay on for the pleasure of putting their feet under our table. Come on, Molly. You've always said you liked camping. <laughs> she loathed their time in Idaho, and Rodman Paul agrees with me. He came up to the house when he, he was writing that introduction to the reminiscences. He told me that she understates everything about this period. Everything! It's difficult to be true as well as kind in a memoir. Rodman Paul? And the passage of years does give one perspective. I knew Rod Paul. He's a good man. Smart man. He edited the Rems. A huge job. And he wrote a terrific introduction. Well, think of that. Good old Rod Paul. Hey, let me see a copy of those reminiscences one of these days, will you? Oh. Yeah. You know, I've been reading about fair use. Take not from others to such an extent and in such a manner that you would be resentful if they took so from you. Joseph MacDonald. The rap group, Two Live Crew, was sued for parodying Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman, but the court decided in the Two Live Crew's favor. I remember that. Surprising. Justice Souter reviewed all the stuff that you mentioned, the purpose of the work, the amount borrowed, the issue of commerciality, but he approached the question in a new way. Is the use transformative? Has the use created something so different that it's new? Hmm. Well, art, science, philosophy, they're all built on the ideas of others. We'd be stopped dead as a culture if we weren't allowed to do that. What about you? You wouldn't have a story without... Stegner's story. Thank you. I comfort myself with the fact that without Mary Hallett Foote's story, neither of us would have a story. You're ignoring half the novel. What about the modern story? When Lawrence and Sondheim created West Side Story, they were clear it was based on Romeo and Juliet. Not that Shakespeare was around to take a bow. As you say, we'd be stopped dead as a culture if we weren't allowed to build on and borrow from those who've gone before. But I think an acknowledgment is in order. Thank you. No, I mean it. What? Oh, uh, you're welcome. Dearest Helena, I actually like living in the canyon, I do. And Nellie's been an absolute brick having to teach the children in a tent. And the juniors, as we call Wiley and Tompkins, are such a help to Arthur, whose spirits will sink from time to time. How I wish that you and Richard could join us when we gather by the river at night next to a fire. There's nothing in the world like it. The river's roaring tonight. Hurling straight into the desert. Wasted. The dream of the big ditch is over. Wiley, Tompkins, you boys should go home. With a look at Susan, Frank, uh, arched his back against the log and relaxed again. Why does Mr. W.S. change Mr. Tompkins' name to Frank when he keeps Wiley's name and Charlie Wan's and Nellie's? Well, he does call Betty Betsy, and he spells Nellie with an I-E instead of a Y. It's a method I use uh, to mix history and fiction whenever fact will serve fiction. Uh, 
and I am writing fiction. I am peacefully willing and perfectly willing to use it that way. Frank turned to look at Susan. No, no, underscore the attraction. Frank sent a heavy-lidded look in Susan's direction. Why don't we build her a house, he said. Let's build her a house out of the very earth we're sitting on. No, Mr. W.S., the canyon house, that wonderful, miraculous place, was Arthur's idea. Well, there's a tension in that. <laughs> Fiction is about heightening, complicating, distorting. Uh, all art is. Nice idea, Frank. But the company's broke. And so am I. But we do have money, Oliver. Thomas's check, the serial rights for testimony. Susan, that check is not for house building. Then I tell you what, Mr. Oliver Ward, I put up the money to build a house. I retain title. When the time comes, I sell it back to the company for construction headquarters. And I charge you twice what it costs. Boys, when you get married, marry a Quaker. They can buy from a Scotsman and sell to a Jew and make money. <laughs> Is that in the letters, the rims? No. That's bad. Arthur and the juniors were always kind enough to say that that check built the Canyon House, Mr. W.S., but not in the way that you described. It's about character, and not your character. It's, it's not your life. Not my life. Uh, I had to warp it. Warp it? Yeah, well, it warped itself. Well, okay, retaining loosely the structure of your life. Hey, hey, that's a little low. Using what's in that letter of Stegner's? Oh, he's just teaching me so much. Though, here is more from that letter. Um, no doubt you expected me to stick with your grandmother's real life and character, he writes. Then all that stuff about how it worked itself. Until the near the end, then fiction takes over entirely. And this makes a funny combination, since I quote fairly freely from her letters, and in effect make your grandmother bolster with her authentic letters the false portrait I am painting of her. The ways of fiction are devious indeed. The so, ways of fiction are devious indeed. So now you are bolstering with his authentic letter, a false portrait, you... Well, he writes, I had to thank you rather darkly and ambiguously and anonymously for lending me your ancestors, but I do feel that debt deeply. And he ends by saying dryly, Wonderful, I feel like a character in literary history. Well, he is, and you're seeing to it that she is too. What? The character in literary history. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Dad, will you help me? Honey, we've please, talked about this. Please. You who? Paper's practically written. But you're beginning to see, aren't you, what he did? Hello, <laughs> not this wheelchair. I just, I, I can't. It goes against every bone in my body. I am sorry. Can I get out of this wheelchair? Shut up about the wheelchair. 
I didn't say anything about a wheelchair. No, I've got work to do. By the way, was Stegner ever in a wheelchair? I was never in a wheelchair in my life. This isn't you. What? I mean, W.S. isn't Stegner any more than Susan is Mary. Oh. No, look, I'm trying to make the point that he's paralyzed. He's without book, as he himself says. He's, he's desperate, he can't write, he finds foot story, and then he can. And then he's handicapped in another way. He wins the Pulitzer largely based on material that isn't his. See, he's using her vehicle to roll himself around. Oh boy, stretching the metaphor a bit, my dear. No one will get it anyway. <laughs> I hate this wheelchair. Do you? I'm so sorry. By the way, W.S., I've been meaning to ask you, who was that young brunette in the car with you when you had that accident in Albuquerque? What? What young brunette? You know very well which young brunette. The, uh... Brunette that shot you heavy-lidded glances, who I am now inserting into this play? I would never. I, I did not. Impossible. Underscore the attraction. We need to have some plot drive here. There's so much I'm learning from you. So we need to have facts or fiction, and in the process, heighten and complicate things. So let's insert her into your car. How could you do that? You, you can't do that. But it's about character, not your character. In the wall I'm building out of the broken rocks of your life, W.S., you were the big man on some big California campus, maybe Stanford? And let's see, your marriage may have been largely happy, but where's the tension in that? So how about we put that heavy-lidded brunette in there, and we'll just uh, keep making Everyone knows I am a man of probity. This isn't going to work. Oh, your character just warped. Or it warped itself. <laughs> While also following loosely the structure of your life. So there she is in your rental car in Albuquerque on a rainy night in 1993. You're talking about my life. People will leave your play thinking that story's true and, and it's not. Mrs. Foot? Another Arthur created a perfect wall plaster out of the native earth that we stood on and we were moved in by Christmas. The stone house in the canyon it came to be called, and when it was finished, it looked like it had lived there a hundred years. Arthur planted dozens of roses, and of all of our wild nest building, this was the wildest. From my desk by the sitting room window, when the working, working light, light began, began to, fail, to fail, I, I looked, looked through into, into the, the dining, dining room. room. And the children at supper. The children at tea. And Nellie reading aloud to them her English profile against the deep-toned west. N Nellie's English profile sharp against the deep-toned west. The, the long, long casement window, window behind their, their heads, heads gave on to the, the whole gate of the canyon. There came a moment in those short winter days. The sun, sun halfway down, down peering, peering over, over the top of the bluffs, bluffs when, when the, the light, light suddenly changed. changed. A pause. Before, before the, the passionate, passionate moment, moment of, of afterglow. To be a plagiarist is to be fundamentally dishonest. It is to claim as uniquely yours what is uniquely someone else's. What? Ian McEwen. It is a tacit admission that your own imagination is defective, insufficient to sustain its own peculiar hold on the world. Stegner's imagination was not defective. What is the point of you if you cannot think things up for yourself? 
I gotta pick up Emily. She's got gymnastics. Get that rug rolled up. She'll want to demonstrate a round-offs when she gets home. Oh, and remember, it takes a pedestrian and literal mind to be worried about what is true and what is not true. Oh, God, more conversations with Etchelaine. In which Stegner says, I seem to be defending this point rather heatedly. The thing is, if you just use their lives, turn that into fiction, that would be no big deal. Writers do that all the time, but he used... Her words. You're doing the same thing. Thank you. I never claim that her words or his are my own. I'm adding five minutes to the play just so that the audience knows <laughs> whose words are whose. Look, all you had to do was acknowledge her, give credit where credit is due. Oh, calm down. Uh -oh. Uh oh. Calm down. Oh, right. Poor women, poor, dumb, irrational, emotional women. Well, it probably has something to do with your complicated gyno-urinary system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Mom and I thought that was funny the first 11 times you said it, and now she lives on the other side of the country. Uh-oh. <laughs> Don't. Don't you dare go there. Dad. No, I, I don't want to talk about it. Just go. Get Dad. What? I'm sorry. Accepted. Although perhaps you could try kneeling for full effect. <laughs> no, don't you dare. Just go get out of here. I'm fine. I'm fine. Go on. The doctor has ordered me to walk, Helena, and I am led out every day like a sick elephant. Not imagine what it is to brave the whole household waiting for the event. It is a text to the inborn and bred gentlemanness of our men. You're missing such an opportunity. Frank waited by the river. He was looking at her very intently. Can you imagine what it is like, he said to Susan, to see this evidence? Of another man. Imagine talking of it to anyone but to Mr. Tompkins? Never. No. Hmm. Harry, Frank, was always around. Kissing your children goodnight. Driving your carriage. Walking with you. Posing for you. Reading to you while... You sketched. It's all in the letters. What about that time when you were so aware of him working in the office below when you have taken off your dress and are dozing away the hot, quiet hours of the afternoon? Mr. W.S. You're missing the real story here. Come on. Tension. Plot. The baby came at sunset, and out of the windows of my room, Bessie told me a double rainbow could be seen spanning the hills where the river enters the canyon. Clear across the stone house, bridging both mountains, uh, next buff, carved two rainbows, one above the other. I quake to think what might have happened out there in the middle of nowhere without my sister to help. That night, as Agnes lay cradled between us, the wind rose and came rushing by the house with a sound of mystery. It was midsummer night, and the fairies might have been abroad on that wild, soft wind bringing dreams. 
and Agnes always was full of a mysterious, lonely joy, as if the fairies of her birth night still kept her company and double rainbows that no one could see stood in her dreaming skies. And uh, here's one from Honduras, Arthur, forwarded along by Century Magazine. And uh, look at the stamp on this one, Manitoba. About this time, there were long distance hails, letters in the Canyon mailbag from readers whom I instantly loved but knew that I would never see. The old man has just been reading aloud to us the last installment of your novel, The Chosen Valley, there being only one copy of Century Magazine in camp. And we've been asking some questions among ourselves, which we guess only you can answer. How do you come to know these things which the eye of a woman hath not seen? <laughs> Look at this, Arthur. It's signed by a bunch of names starting with the old man and ending with the kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Molly, what do you answer? I'll tell them delightedly that I married one of their lot and know them in the remotest hiding places. But I wash my hands of any mistakes they might find. Sitting beside my smokers in the restful silence of the junior's room, often I thought of one of their phrases, the angle of repose, which was too good to waste on rock slides or heaps of sand. Each of us in the canyon was slipping and crawling and, and grinding along, seeking what to us was that angle, but we were not any of us ready for repose. It wasn't that jolly. What about that letter in 1887? The first time in four years? She tells Helena anything about how many times work on the canal has been stopped. Here you go, W.S. Our canal is a perfect Frankenstein, Helena. It is a sort of life of its own that carries us in tow. These years have been the sternest discipline my life has ever known. Hope steadily deferred from day to day. Hope oh, steadily moment. deferred from day to day is hardly a plot, is it? Boring. <laughs> High on the rim above the canyon, Frank and Susan sat carefully, not touching, speaking of Oliver's flagging spirits and the stalled nature of all their lives. There were tears, then kisses, passionate and despairing words. Hands? What do you mean, hands? I find it hard to conceive in relation to my grandmother, and there was an awful lot of clothes. Mr. W.S. Nevertheless, she had been bottled up a long time. Bottled up? What are you talking about? It's a good scene. It's a ridiculous scene. Mr. Tompkins had a nervous temperament. He was very high strung. He was not in the least an appealing sort of person. Well, you can't tell me he wasn't fond of you. And I was fond of him, but we were locked into that windy canyon for years. I could have screamed at the lack of privacy. You behave as if I'm some sort of Victorian simpleton with no imagination. I never say it's an actual affair. You, you could do a lot with implication. I used that very idea in one of my stories. I knew it. Writing from life. Writing from life is not writing from facts. What is true is not necessarily real. Oh, la-dee-da. What a very limited notion you seem to have of fiction. 
Assuming a writer has only his own biography with which to work, is that the way you write, Mr. W.S.? If I read your stories, will I find only you? Arthur named his newest experiment in rose making after you, Helena. It took him five varieties and six years, but its color is deep red and its aroma lovely. And I have done a thing that makes my heart thump since Sonny's name to St. Paul's Preparatory Academy for the fall of 1889. No, no, Ollie doesn't him. go to St. Paul yet. The tragedy hasn't happened. And what tragedy might that be, Mr. W.S.? This decade was full of them, the death of father, mother, Bessie's John, banks closing, fortunes lost, and Arthur. Is it another death? It's I have begun to dread the Canyon mailbag. It's from John Wesley Powell. Major Powell. Congress has passed a bill fathered by senators from the arid states providing for a government irrigation survey. The government? Looking into irrigation, that's good news, isn't it? Last month, Powell offered me a position. I told him I'd accept, on one condition. A condition, Arthur? They made a condition? That part of my work be made to cover the Snake River Valley. Molly, how can I leave this? It's starting over, back to lines on paper, when we've already... I will take it. Powell says he's glad to oblige. You are, Mr. Foote, one of the men I must have on this work. Oh, Arthur! You... You know it's the end of the big ditch. Six years of work! Six years for nothing! But this government survey will prove that everything you've been working... Irrigation! Water is the next great movement of the West. I know it. I know it! But we have failed to make a go of it. Someone else will, you can be sure of it. Wiley's got the Union Pacific. But I have to tell Tompkins and Charlie Wan and everyone else that they must find other work. It's over. Over. Oh, God, you may be glad of it, but I am not. I am glad of it. I have come to hate this canyon, Arthur. I have come to hate the wind, the endless sound of the river, the cheerful telegrams that offer, offer empty promises. Sonny is turning into a cowboy, and Agnes must wear Betty's hand-me-downs. We are beholden to everyone. But you know what I hate above all? I hate that thee has turned to drink. To spirits. <coughs> Oh, yes, I pretend I don't know, but everyone knows. Thy spirit has failed, and thee tries to replace it with false ones. I'm glad the canal has failed, Arthur. Yes, glad. Our house is built upon sand. We are a family without a future. <laughs> it is all so squalid. I want to explore what she means by angle of repose. Stegner has Lyman Ward define it as horizontal, permanently. Lyman's marriage is in shambles, his wife's cheated on him, he's one-legged in a wheelchair. 
and the result of the domestic tragedy that Stegner makes Oliver and Susan live together to the ends of their lives in bitter silence. They never speak to each other again. What kind of repose is that? And what's Mary's angle of repose? What she says. Each of us was slipping and crawling and grinding along, seeking what to us was that angle, but we were not any of us ready for repose. Rest, contentment, something earned. I see. I want to give them repose. Foot and Stegner. As if they are ghosts or something. Restless spirits. Though I doubt Stegner's spirit is restless, I just think it ought to be. Your canal, Mr. Foot, is clearly a brilliant notion. <laughs> oh, Molly! Molly, the big ditch! The big ditch. That subject of ridicule and pity was now the great show of the countryside. An unroofed gallery, 80 feet across, swept in a mathematical curve around a shoulder of the hill. Ten horsemen might ride down it abreast. And at the contractor's base camp, the lights at night were like a little city. And we were building the new house, the mesa, putting up a windmill, laying out ditches, digging holes for hundreds of baby trees. We are spending money like water, Arthur, to get ready for water that's not even in sight. Why must we put all the money into the ground at once? Why not go by this little by little? If I go ahead in a creeping and doubtful manner, everyone will follow my creeping example. A half mile avenue lined with poplars? A 50 acre field plowed with wheat? Mary, it is keeping faith with those who buy the stock to show them what the land can do. And we died slowly. Our orchards were the greatest tragedy. Hundreds of little nursery trees watered by hand until there was no water. You're leaving out the meat of the story. Back way up. I beg your pardon. Ollie hasn't yet been sent off to school. Susan hasn't yet tried living without Oliver. The big ditch has not yet dried up. Up to row. Reconstructing grandmother's life has been an easy game. Her letters and reminiscences have provided both event and interpretation. But now I am at a place where she hasn't done the work for me. I have to make it up. Make it up. Interesting admission. And less than 50 pages from the end of the novel. A truthful one. From here on, he uses none of Mary's letters. He no longer quotes from her or relies on her memoirs. Wouldn't that seem a little inconsistent? Yeah. <laughs> and to solve the sudden lack of historical documentation, when up to now there's been so much, he has Lyman Ward send away for news clippings from the Idaho Historical Society, but they're not actual historical news clippings. Stegner, finally behaving like the fiction writer he is, composes these clippings to suit his fictional needs. I did think that was a good bit of work, that. <laughs> Lyman goes through them in reverse order. First, we're told that Ollie's been taken east by his mother, unceremoniously dropped at St. Paul's before school begins. I have to conclude that he knew something, or, or had seen something. For over ten years, he never returned home. Nonsense! We saw him as often as we could afford, and we wrote constantly. Then, says Stegner's fictional narrator, reading from a fictional news clipping, 
It seems that the ward's youngest daughter, Agnes, died. No. Drowned in the canal after becoming separated from her mother, who was taking a walk. No, not Agnes. It serves the story. And yet, another news clipping. Three days after Agnes drowns, Mr. Frank Sargent blows his brains out. Mr. Tompkins? No, no, Mr. Tompkins had a full and happy life. He got married. He even got a little fat. Oh, Mr. W.S., don't kill Agnes, please. Her life was short enough. You see, Susan's lost track of Agnes because she and Frank are off behind a tree somewhere. I don't say what they were doing. Uh, they may have just been talking. When Susan realized that Agnes is missing, she and Frank call and call for her. And up runs Oliver with little Ollie in tow, which is why Ollie can't go away to school before this, you see. <laughs> then Frank shows up to help the search. And everyone wonders, what's Frank doing here? Because supposedly he's been gone, supposedly he's working someplace else, but little Ollie knows, and big Ollie knows too. No. And neither one ever forgives her. Ollie never returns home. For the rest of their lives, Oliver won't speak to Susan. Agnes is dead. The family is blown apart. Angle of repose. Is this why? Is this why you changed our names? But you used so much. Our lives, my letters, our friends. And if you ha have to kill my beautiful daughter, why of all people can't you change her name? How could you let her be Agnes? No, no, this was no real Agnes. I invented her as I invented the drowning. No Agnes, no Agnes. Oh, God, and in your version, Mr. Tompkins and I are... Mr. Tompkins, does... Arthur, what does Arthur think? And as punishment, Stegner has Oliver yank up all the roses he'd so carefully planted. Arthur would never, ever do such a thing. Well, it's not Arthur, it's Oliver. This is not you, this is not your husband. Look, I needed revelation, one that would upset all the lives concerned as the Greek tragedians taught us, and don't you see, Agnes is a symbol. A symbol? She's the product of Eastern sensibilities, colliding with Western realities. She has to die. She has to. Emily Dickinson had it right, Mr. W.S. Hope is a thing with feathers, and it beats its frantic wings in the inside of your heart until you think that you will go mad. We lived like that for 10 long years, working, hoping, waiting for money, for encouragement, for backers, for the opportunity to take Arthur's dream and make it real. We lived and ate and breathed that dream, and my dear old loving boy had to see it fall apart. But that isn't enough plot for you, enough tension. You have to turn it into something as lurid and as petty and as small as a stolen kiss? You kill my beloved daughter, you turn her into a symbol because it serves your story? I rather like some of your writing, Mr. W.S., but I hate your mind. Now, I sent away to the Albuquerque Historical Society for some news clippings, W.S. I thought you might be interested in hearing them. Let's see. 
Albuquerque, March 28, 1993. Uh, the well-known writer, W.S., is involved in a car accident on Tuesday night following an awards banquet. He was accompanied by, let's see, Hester Prynne. Yeah. <laughs> Hester, a heavy-lidded student at the University of New Mexico. Miss Prynne suffered a slight concussion in the crash, which occurred when the car hit them from behind, and they were parked high on the Red Mesa, otherwise known as Lover's Lane. That never happened. But I've worked out so many details to make it sound as if it did. Must I now unravel the little threads I've so painstakingly raveled together? Does it matter to you that an occasional reader or scholar can detect? I never cheated on my marriage. Did marry? But really, isn't that neither here nor there? It serves the story. I have the dates you were in Albuquerque, the awards ceremony you attended, the text of the speech you delivered. I could easily compose more news clippings, although I'd have to get the actual name of the Albuquerque newspaper for verisimilitude. You know how it is. Did he really say that about Agnes not existing? In a letter to the grad student who was interested in the similarities between Stegner, Susan, Burling, and the real Mary Hallett, the family never got over it, you know. J.M., Janet Michelow, she had a nervous breakdown as a result of the use to which Stegner put the loan of her ancestors. She never recovered. It's interesting. All this time I thought the family was upset because Stegner didn't give proper credit for using those letters and memories. But it's worse than that, isn't it? What do you mean? I mean, well, the Foots have been dead less than 30 years when the novel was published. They were widely known individually, and together they were an active force in shaping the West. Since so much of the story was based exactly on their lives, many readers assumed that Stegner had exhumed a well-hidden skeleton from the Foot family closet. I certainly exactly, did. Exactly, Dad, exactly. That, this is, and this is a man who was your friend, and you're still going to head down to Stanford and praise him? Love you too. <laughs> Will you attend? Dad, I'm sure you'll be brilliant. I just, I don't think I can bear it. There's a ticket set aside for you. For Stephen and Lee, too. Look, Mary Halleck simply wasn't important enough to make her more than modestly interesting. A mere biography would have sold at best 3,000 copies. By converting her to fiction, I at least had the chance to make her immortal. I see. No, you don't. And you took that from that an interview, too, didn't you? I mean, it sounds just horribly fatuous. Well, you got them to Grass Valley. Arthur's gainfully employed. Is, is this your angle of repose? Not quite. I would have written you earlier, Helena, but there was no time. It was a rare case, the doctors say, where appendicitis is concerned. She said, dear daddy, and kissed her finger to him. It was over at four in the afternoon. She was buried on Saturday. The miners lined the road <clears throat> for a quarter of a mile singing the Cornish carols she loved. When Wiley heard that Agnes died, and she was 18 when she died, she wrote to Arthur, I shall always think of dear Agnes as that exquisite little child whom I used to know and love. That note of condolence amongst the letters that the Foots loaned you and McMurray all those years ago. I found it in the Stanford Library with the 
Papers of Mary's? Did it inspire you, W.S.? Is that where you got the idea that Agnes, that exquisite little child, would die so young? I was trying to create a, a piece of literature. That's all I was trying to do. In fact, right here at Stanford in the 50s, he taught one of those stories in a course called The Rise of Realism. She was one of the best, he said, of her writing. Her novels were well-reviewed, as were three collections of short stories and dozens of essays about the West that, like Stegner, she tried to explain for those who didn't live here. Had there been a way for them to meet, they might have been friends, certainly colleagues. In an ultimately troubling way, his novel makes it clear that he admired her and her writing. And clearly, Mary Halleck Foote was an admirable woman. Yet, it is in Foote's combined story that is inspiring, even heroic. Arthur wanted to make a living bringing water to lands and people. In spite of deep doubts, Mary supported that dream. When that failed, and Arthur was asked to, to return to mining, an endeavor in which a great deal of money could be made, Arthur refused to put electricity and water in the same environment. He cost his employer, Haig, a great deal of money, but he refused to risk men's lives to line his own pockets. Again, with Mary's support, financial, intellectual, emotional, that was one hell of a marriage. But not the one it must be said that Stegner captures in a novel that adheres so closely, except as I have mentioned for those last 45 pages to their real lives. In 1972, when Foote's memoirs were published, the same year Angle of Repose won the Pulitzer, but rem her reminiscences garnered little interest and there was no way Stegner could have known, nor no way could he have imagined, that within his lifetime, the diaries and letters of women would become so intriguing, even vital to historical and literary sleuths. And since Foote's memoir is beguiling and her writing lively, interest in her has grown, as well it should. Her descriptions of place are among the most vivid of any writer, past or present, whose aim is to capture the West. One of the first of those was we call Western writers, writers that Stegner taught us to appreciate. She is only now beginning to turn up in anthologies that celebrate them. This renewed interest in her often leads to him. Even he would find that ironic. After many years of Grass Valley repose, Arthur gave Mary a necklace of 40 gold beads, one for each of the years she followed him, accompanied him through the wilderness. They did not give up as Stegner in his novel has both his modern and historical couples do. To be fair, in this he was perhaps reflecting the anti-romantic times in which he lived. Nonetheless, I, I find it sad that 
in a novel that follows so closely the trajectory of Foote's lives, Stegner chose not to include a truly redemptive aspect of their story. In 1909, when they were anchored at the North Star, deep and deep, deep mining, and deep mining, the old Idaho dream came back with its sound of wild waters between dark basalt bluffs that cut the sky. Bessie sent us something, Arthur, from the Boise, Idaho statesman. Will you read it to me? February 24th, 1909, most highly honored are those who, as years pass, are found to have stood upon elevations during their day from which they commanded a horizon far beyond the sight or understanding of masses of people. A quarter of a century ago, Arthur Foote saw where water could be diverted. He saw where it could be stored and in the reach of his precise imagination, he could see these lands peopled with thousands of prosperous families. Oh, Arthur, it's the big ditch. 3,000 people lined its banks to see it open. Molly, we are past the time of life when success lifts the heart and failure casts it down. I have learned to treat those two impostors just the same. Still, I am glad. Now, what do you think of my rose, Agnes? Is that what you've named it? Oh, my dear old boy, it's lovely. Arthur managed the North Star Mine until 1912 when Sonny took over as superintendent. In 1932, the senior foots packed their trunks one last time and moved to Massachusetts, where they lived with their daughter Betty until they passed on. Arthur in 1933, Mary in 1938, at the age of 91. She had expressed interest in being cremated, and this allowed the family to satisfy her desire to be buried in Grass Valley beside her daughter, Agnes. Thus, Stegner's ashes are in the East, with which he had such an ambivalent relationship. Mary's are out here in the West, where she never felt entirely at home. Now I'd like to briefly draw your attention to, as Charles Loomis put it, her unmistakable largeness of soul, which belongs to our horizons. These are a few of Pictures of the Far West, published by Richard Gilder in Century Magazine when Mary was in her 40s, living in Idaho. If we could have the first slide, please. Dad, it was brilliant, brilliant, thank you. <laughs> Yes, uh, I've already received three offers to publish it. I'm going to have to give you co-author credit. <laughs> no, I am not serious. <laughs> but you almost are. You thanked me very nicely today. I appreciated the applause. What about those boos? And all the hissing? That got a laugh. Hey, you who? No, I'm sorry I didn't invite Steve. He would have loved it, but he was sweet about taking Emily at such short notice. Oh. God, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> Thanks for putting up with me and for putting us up. It's been so good to have this haven while we sorted things out. I keep imagining riding on the bank of a fine, wide river that Steve's taking photographs of and 
Emily's doing round-offs in two. Hey! But that experiment hasn't settled much, except that we're not going to sell the house. Emily and I will live in it for now. He won't. That's as far as we got. Sounds good. Yoo-hoo! You know, driving home tonight, I was thinking about Arthur and the engineers and surveying and well-banked roads. When you take a curve a little too fast and the road angles, angles in such a precise and helpful way. Hello. <laughs> I can't help wondering, how on earth do you give them their angle of repose? Would you finally let me out of this wheelchair? I'm not sure. I suppose the real question is, can you? Come on, pretty please. Maybe, but I don't see how it can be forever. Well, I'll take what I can get. I see what you mean. You have no idea what it was like. All those reviews praising her story, her voice, talking about the verisimilitude, the authenticity. It must have been like wearing a hair shirt. New Yorker magazine didn't even mention the modern story, just talked about Susan Burling when there's so much more to the novel. You know, you thank the Foots for the loan of their ancestors. If you borrowed them, you need to give them back. <laughs> and how am I supposed to do that? Come to my estate manager in a dream? Ask the Stegner Foundation to send half the prize money to the Foot family? Why not? Pardon? You could have mentioned her contribution when you accepted the prize. I uh, impossible. I know. Put the novel and the reminiscences together in one of those nice boxed gift sets. Yeah. Or, or at least an afterward in any future edition of the novel. An annotated volume. Ooh. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> I know what I think you should do. What? Oh, yes! Cool! Come on. Except it's sentimental. No, 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 I am not going to do that. Avoid a sentimental ending, dear. Go on. Why not give it a try? I don't like it. <laughs> but here goes. I'm sorry. Oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> what? Uh, actually, I don't think she'd like that at all. It's not who I am, you know. Just who you'd like me to be. I just wanted to hear what it would sound like. What's that? I'm sorry. Ah, well, it's quite a conundrum, given giving them their angle of repose. You're not going to let me stay out of that wheelchair, are you? Maybe not, I'm sorry, but thank you. Oh, try that, thank her. I did remember. My thanks to J.M. and her sisters for the loan of their ancestors. But really, this time. Well, that doesn't work either. No. You hoped no one would ever find out, didn't you? It was a Faustian bargain. 
wonderful. I feel like a character in a literary history. What do you think, dear? Do they get that repose? Looking a long way is not a social experience. It's an aesthetic or even a religious one. It happens outdoors. You know that. I know that. I don't know. I'm trying. Even now, on our continental journeys, when we reach that country of the high valleys and the old lava flows between the knees of the ranges, when we halt at some lonesome junction at or water tank in the sagebrush and step out to breathe that air again and listen to the essential silence after the roar of the train. There, in the whisper of the desert wind, it all comes back. The shiver of an old longing and doubt and expectancy. The ring of mountains lifting and lowering down to the great gate where the sun is setting in a storm of gold. The purple shadows darken in their canyons the color mounts to the zenith. The plains are flushed with light. Swing by Tritachion. You've been listening to Stray Theater. Thanks for tuning in.